I'm Luke Simmons. And I am Seth Trout. And we're here with the King Culture Podcast, where our goal is to critique the hell out of culture. All right, Seth, we're back. How are you doing, man? I'm doing excellent. I'm excited to uh, do another one of these. Yeah. We should do it every week. Why don't we do that? Um, because we have other things that we have to do, but it's fun. And we like to kind of keep people in suspense. One day, one day we could be full-time podcasters. <laughs> just kidding. That, uh, that I don't know sounds, about that. That sounds terrible, actually. I don't know. But we are glad for the folks who listen. And so thanks for those of you who are uh, sharing this with people. If you're rating and reviewing it, that's nice as well. But really our goal with this whole podcast is just to try to help the people of our church, Redemption Church Gateway, to um, just be able to handle better kind of what's going on in culture, to be able to assess it biblically and theologically, and to really have some categories to um, be able to think through things. So, um, so yeah, thanks for listening. And Seth, we're kind of in a, the, today's sort of part two of a little mini series we're doing on how to evaluate culture. So last time we talked about cult and culture, the kind of the relationship of worship sort of at the heart of every culture. Give us just a brief little snapshot of what we talked about last time. Yeah, the big idea is at the heart of every culture, there is a cult. And the word cult, we talked about how that can have decidedly negative connotations, as in like a religious community that you're ostracized from if you break orthodoxy. But we're trying to use it more neutrally in that sense. It's a, it's every, it's a belief about what the world is, what the world is for, what humans are, what humans are for, how God plays his part in that. In that sense, everybody is religious. Everyone has a meta worldview or a uh, group of affections that shape the direction and goal of their life. And that is fundamentally religious. Yeah. And so there are multiple cultures, even when we talk about the culture, well, there's really lots of different cultures, but at the heart of all of them is a religious root. And there's similarities that kind of run through that. Some of that I think we even see today. So yeah, Herman Bobbing talked about how a culture is a set of beliefs made visible. Mm-hmm. And so every household has a culture Every church has a culture, um, but even once you get to the size of a church, there's pockets of culture. Likewise, in American culture, there's lots of different pockets of cultures. Sure. And so multiculturalism is just a reality. And if by that what we mean is uh, the, 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 the accumulative effect of people's values, desires, passions, and personalities shape a normal way that things are mm-hmm. and from household to household, those things can vary. And, but what's, what's the biggest idea here is that like the public square or this idea, especially like as it relates to government or um, those things, uh, secular people really want to say things like keep your religion out of that. And I'm arguing that that's impossible. Yeah. We are always bringing a set of assumptions about what it means to be human and what the goal of life is into all of those things. And yeah. So, even, even the quote unquote, re- you know, neutral religious or neutral public square isn't neutral. There's no such thing as neutral. Yeah, it has a judgment about what it means to be human and what it means to be a person uh, in a in a polis in a in a public reality. So today's part two of this little mini series, and I, my guess is the title may have grabbed some folks' attention: "How Moses Critiques the Hell Out of Culture." That makes me feel good. I, I don't want to just be a couple of angry guys critiquing the hell out of culture on a podcast. Yeah. I want I want to see that it's biblical. So today we're going to kind of look at especially Genesis 1 to 11 and some other parts of the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible, and look at Moses, who authored those, and how he actually, in, inherent in his writing, is a kind of critique of, of culture. Yeah, I think Genesis and Exodus are really doing two things. One, they're telling us the truth about history, but two, they're telling us in such a way that's kind of like a documentarian that there is a decided crafting 
uh, and telling of the story that really has an agenda. So Moses has an agenda, yeah. and that fortunately for us is God's agenda. But when God is working through Moses to record the events of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, or the Pentateuch, which Moses wrote, he is doing so with what I would call like a charismatic or a preaching force. We're not supposed to just read it and go, oh, that's interesting. We're supposed to read it and respond accordingly. That yeah. it's supposed to cut us and move us and shape us and direct us. And in that sense, the Pentateuch is sort of like a sermon about a past event that God worked in, and now he's using that to work through us now. Yeah, and if it's a sermon, then it's a sermon to people. It's not just kind of spoken out into the ether. I think that's a lot of times how we think of the Bible, is, and especially Genesis and the early part of Genesis, that it just sort of fell from heaven as this record of what happened exactly. And to say, well, this really did happen, but it didn't just fall from heaven as if it was not landing anywhere. It was landing with a group of people who needed to hear it. Now, you used the word a minute ago, charismatic. Yeah. Um, I, I don't want to just blow by that. Um, that has with it the idea of the word charisma. Mm-hmm. You talked just briefly about what that is. It most basically, I'd say that it's preaching or uh, communication that demands a response. So if I'm in... And, and it's, that charisma comes from a Greek word. Yeah. It yeah. is a Greek word. Yeah, it's a Greek word that has to do with like preaching or or yeah, forceful communication. It'd be like if I'm in a movie theater and I said hi to someone. Not charisma. Not it's not charismatic. Doesn't demand a response. Yeah, we'd say that's not charismatic. Yeah. That does not really demand a response. But if I said fire, they would have to decide right away, true, false, react or not react. They'd have to make a decision, an assessment of the communication. You can't hear someone yell fire in a movie theater and be neutral. You must either say true or false. And so in the same way, Moses is writing Genesis and you're not supposed to just read it and go, huh, interesting. Yeah. You must decide true or false, respond, don't respond. And so there's, you're necessarily implicated or morally cut by your assessment of that text. And so um, we as Christians believe that it is true and it's demanding a response and it's shaping a worldview and it's calling us out, but it's doing that in a way that was first meant to shape and confront the earliest Hebrews. Yeah, I remember uh, actually taking a a class in seminary about this, and it just blew my mind. It was the first time I'd ever really thought about who is the intended audience of Moses as he's writing. Well, Moses, we know, dies before they go into the promised land. So he's writing to people who have just come out of that story and who have just experienced life in Egypt. Um, maybe later on, some of them are the, the next generation, the sons and daughters of, of that generation. But these are folks who've just had an experience together. And Moses is, is sharing with them, here's how this all started. And here's how everything that started and all that's gone before us actually should inform where we are right this moment. Yeah, the question is, why, when God decides to recount the creation of the world to Israel through Moses, why does he start, one, with image of God, and two, with male and female. Interesting. He could have started a million places. Why does he start right there? Why does he say, hey, all of you who just freed from slavery, who are now wandering in the wilderness, it's now been hundreds of years that you've been enslaved. I have something to say to you about where you came from and where the world came from. And he decides to start with image of God. Hmm. So we can reflect on that. We think these people have just been brutalized for centuries. The fir- and he could have started with the doctrine of sin. Hey, you're all sinners. Yeah. But he saves that to Genesis 3. He gets there quick. It's a priority. Right, it doesn't take long. But he starts with the dignity 
and value of every individual. Mm. And he's doing that in critiquing the hell out of Egypt. Yeah, because like Egypt didn't view it that way. It was yeah. In Egypt, you were a possession. In Egypt, you were just one notch above an ox. In Egypt, you did not have your own identity or value, or you brought nothing to the table besides labor. You were cut off for being creative. You were not a culture maker. You were just under the thumb. And God is critiquing the hell of Egypt, saying mm. they have a bad view of what it means to be human, because every single human, without exception, is made in the image of God and has dignity, therefore. And every single human, without exception, represents God in a way. And that would have been received as a violent cultural critique mm. to the point where probably these Egyptians who had just been brutalized for 400 years, here, you're made in the image of God. And they probably a little bit rolled their eyes. Yeah, like, no, not us. I mean, maybe the Egyptians, they were okay. But yeah. us, really? Yeah, I don't own property. I haven't built anything. I'm what, wandering in the desert. Yeah. What value have I created? God's the creator. What have I created? Look around. And so it would have been probably offensive, in particular to maybe even some of Israel's leaders. Like I would, like Moses, like, hey, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. If everyone knows that they have dignity and value, that's going to be harder for me to lead them. Because when they have a low view of themselves, then they just do whatever I say. Right. Right. Yeah, these people are used to being slaves. He could have written it in such a way to control and maintain his power. Yeah, and so anyway, like what could have happened is they could have traded slavery to Pharaoh for slavery to Moses. Mm. But God like right away goes, that's not what we're doing. We're not just trading slave masters. We're instilling dignity and resisting the entire cultural norm of slaves versus persons. So the positive declaration that they're made in the image of God is also therefore a critique of the view that they had before and the place they came before. So I, I get that, and I, I go, okay, man, I like that. That's interesting. I, I connect with that. But then I go, okay, you said not only image of God, but male and female. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm now I'm doing the math, and I'm going, okay, how would that be a critique of Egypt? Because surely they had males and females in Egypt. <laughs> um, it's not like they had some third gender of person there, or, or did they? Or so, so help me. Help me understand that. How is how's declaring not only that you're made in the image of God, but that you're also male and female, how is that not just an assertion of who you are, but also a critique of the gods of Egypt? Yeah, so actually in ancient cultures, there very often was a third gender type thing, kind of androgynous in between huh. male and female thing. They talked about female husbands from time to time, like this, like super masculine women who kind of yeah. had male-ish tendencies. Hmm. And so it, within Egypt, there was a tremendous amount of sexual perversion and so, promiscuity. So j just real fast to put you on the spot here a little bit, but I've never heard of that. I'm a pretty educated person. Yeah. What, how do you, where would I, if I wanted to find out more about that, I don't know. I mean, be careful with your internet searches, people, I guess. <laughs> but uh, where would I find out about that? So there's another place you could go. One, I'll have an article I'll put in the show notes, which is actually from a, LGBTQ positive website talking about how common homosexuality and uh, that type of practice was in Egypt. There's just kind of this narrative that exists right now. That's like Moses and Paul didn't know about uh, homosexual orientation. They just kind of knew about um, older males abusing younger males. Okay. And so what the yeah. Bible in their like six or seven passages is doing is critiquing that, that pederastic process, um, which is a sexual abuse. Right. But both in ancient Greece and in ancient Egypt, there's a pretty serious awareness of a variety 
of sexual perversions. And so uh, a huge part. So, so we'll put that in the show notes, but that's not because we are endorsing that website. Yeah. It's more just, it's, it's a place where you could read more about how these kinds of sexual abnormalities or, you know, yeah, a bunch of whatever. Uh, yeah. A handful of secular, uh, archeologists have documented like various places like the book of the dead, that homosexual practice is pretty normal and pretty typical. And it was considered like, kind of part of the deal and some are into it, some are not into it. Yeah. There was a, a culture of shame of the, the penetrated male, not the penetrating male. Right. So there was some of that, but even back as far as Plato, which you have this story of the way that Zeus creates is he splits and it creates these explicitly homosexual and heterosexual folks. And so if you want to dive into like some of that history, it's there and it's available to you, but it was pretty normal, both in terms of like the temple practice for, um, lesbianism and and homosexuality like of of dudes gay gay guys like that was not a totally uncommon practice and so you have um you know females having affection for females um like this reciprocal relationship it's not abusive it's just mutual exchange of goods and services sometimes it's explicitly religious sometimes it's um just prostitution sometimes it's just for warmth and affection and loneliness, but it's remarkably typical. And so this idea of same-sex orientation as being a modern thing that old writers didn't understand is just simply not true. Um, Bernadette Bruton and William Loder have written a bunch about this as well, if you want to read like real scholars on this. But there are contemporary people like Matthew Vines who write books who basically kind of argue that Moses and Paul were dumb. Yeah, they didn't know about any of that. Yeah, they just were ignorant, and they were critiquing what they didn't fully understand, and so what you're saying is that in Genesis, when, when Moses is saying, hey, you're created male and female, he's, he's definitely telling you who you are, and then in God's eyes, there are two genders. And that is also, therefore, then you're saying a critique of, of some of what was common in Egypt. He's not, yeah, he's not just saying you're male and female. He's saying that maleness and femaleness is how everything works. He's going, in the beginning, there are these series of binaries Light and dark, heaven, earth, land, sea, plants, animals, male, but man was alone. Mm, yeah. And God says, it is not good for man to be alone. So he creates woman so that male would have his corresponding other and female. Yeah. And what Moses is getting at is denying that male, so even in Hebrew, Male means piercer, and female means pierced one. Mm. That they are like the literal words, the yeah, little Hebrew words. Yeah, they have that's these. What that they have explicitly sexual connotations. That the male goes in, the woman has gone into. Just like light and dark, and so the the contrast of that. Not only that, but what you end up seeing is like the best and most beautiful parts of creation. Yeah, they're the place where those things intersect. Yeah. You know, it's sunsets. where heaven meets earth is the sunset. Yeah, where heaven meets earth, light and dark meet sunsets, sunrises. You have mountains where the light, where the where the sky meets the land. You have the beach mm. where the land yeah. meets the sea. And sex where male meets female. Yeah. Not where female meets female. Not where male meets male. But where the two correlated but corresponding fundamentally others come together these end up being the various apexes of the created order. Mm. And so that's why a sunset on the beach 
combines two of these things, and right. it's like the best thing ever. Yeah. And hypothetically, I bet sex during the sunset on the beach would be pretty great. I don't know if I'll ever know that or not, but I don't yet. So Yeah, we're, we don't need to dive too deep in that, but I bet you're right. <laughs> yeah. So the point being is like where these corresponding others come together is tremendous, and it's, and it's, the, it's the best. It's like yeah. the, the deal that these things are good on their own, but they're very good together. And so Moses isn't just saying, hey, there's two genders. He's saying the very fabric of creation is binary. And not only is it binary, but it's beautifully binary. And this kind of males going with males and females going with females violates the very fabric of creation. Hmm. So before you even get to any type of negation of homosexual practice, you have this woven together critique of androgyny, of gender fluidity, of uh, homosexual activity, and even homosexual desire, because it's fundamentally not the beautiful world that God created. Mm, wow. Yeah, it's it's just so striking because I think we think of these issues as so new and so, uh, like, we're the only ones that have had to think about it or, or deal with it or approach it or analyze it. And it's just like, wow, no, not, not at all. You know, yeah. at the very beginning of this story of the world, you have these these critiques and these affirmations of here's what's true and here's what's not. Yeah. Yeah. So the big idea, even in some of the ancient years, you have, you have homosexuality among the gods that they're like tempting and luring one another and giving in and then using it. And, and so this kind of narrative that, uh, since the 1960s, we've been so sexually enlightened. Congratulations to us. We're throwing off the yoke of oppression of biblical sexual ethics, uh, is actually just not true. There was probably, and this is something that like super postmodern liberals kind of get correct, is like in the Victorian era, there was kind of this uh, repression of sexuality as good and normal, and it kind of all went into the shadows and into the dark, and we can't talk about it. It's kind of all sexuality became don't ask, don't tell. Okay. And so some of that kind of Victorian era uh, repression narrative that you hear in like Michel Foucault and those types of postmodern um, theorists has some validity. But the part of the problem is they begin their history not late enough. Yeah. Like if I want to go all the way back to Moses, you're going, Moses is saying uh, males go with females. And this is like why I think it's so central and why. So one of the big critiques Christians get all the time is why do you talk about sex so much? Why do Christians critique homosexuality all the time? Why are reproductive processes and abortion and all the, like. What's wh- funny because even when you say that, I'll tell you what I think. You know, I think about that and go, you know, we do it, ask anything every year, uh, usually after Christmas, we'll do it again. And I guarantee there will be tons of questions about sexuality. I just guarantee it. And so you'd go, well, why do we talk about it so much? Because people ask about it all the time because yeah. it's kind of an ever present issue. Yeah. And that's totally fair. It's ever present issue. But I think also just the reality of what we talked about last time is the smallest cultural unit, the building block of society is male, female, marriage, children, household. Hmm. That when you start eroding that, this is why I think it's good for Christians to begin a cultural critique. In the, this is like the, the first three things. Number one is theology. What does that culture think about God? That's sort of what we looked at last time. Yeah, creation. Yeah. yeah, Who is the creator? Where did this come from? Right. Where is it going? Why does it exist? What's that creator guy like? What's he not like? God. The second thing is anthropology. What are humans for? What's their dignity? What's their value? Image of God. Yeah. Right? Do they have classes of humans? Persons versus slaves. 
or caste system type stuff. All of this is unbiblical. And the third question, immediately following that, not before the first two, is what do they do with male and female? Mm. Wow. Because male and female in Genesis 1, that they will have dominion together. That There's an equality and a partnership. There is a shared responsibility to make culture. Uh, and at the same time, there is an absolute distinction that there is male and there is female and they go together and they're not interchangeable and they're not the same. And so I would say radical feminism, which says there's no distinction between male and female, is totally false. Right. But kind of like a, maybe like a first or second wave feminism, which is like women should be able to vote and women should be able to work. Like if, so first and second wave feminism. Yeah. I feel like Genesis 1 is like obviously on board with that first or second wave, but kind of some of the modern stuff that's trying to erase distinctions between male and female and even you had this hashtag trending for a while earlier this year, maybe later last year, it was like hashtag kill all men, you know, <laughs> and I would say now you're going to have a reverse caste system. You're right. kind of trending towards, and that's part of what some of like the postmodern, like cultural Marxist stuff we have right now is it's creating this like neoliberal caste system mm. where you have statuses of person and based on um, what caste they're in, their voice matters more, matters less. Yeah. And so that's some of the critique that I think. So those big three things is mm. what's your theology with animal God, image of God, and male and female. And so I don't think Christians should shy away from upholding the creational norms of males and females are not interchangeable. It's rooted in biology, XX, XY, and that there is a tremendous pain that can go along these things, but maleness and femaleness are essential building blocks of meaningful and healthy culture. Yeah, so for this conversation, you're not here addressing what do I do if I find myself same-sex attracted? Or what do I do if I find myself experiencing some sort of gender dysphoria or confusion? Um, it, this conversation is less about the kind of, okay, here's how I walk you through that. Here's the kind of shepherding and pastoral kind of approach to that. You're, you're, we're really looking at this from like a cultural perspective. Yeah, but here's what I want to say. And I want to be patient here. And I don't know you, if you're listening, that one, like psychological condition of same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria are real and they're really painful and they're at a minimum non-pleasant. Mm. Yeah. But they are not new. They've existed for a long time. Disordered desires, incongruent sense of self, radical insecurity, feeling like I don't belong in my body, They've gained tremendous traction in the last one to 40 years, but it's not new. And the question we have to ask is why all of a sudden is the entire culture screaming at you, do what you want with your body? Why is our culture all of a sudden out of the blue saying, if you feel incongruent with your body, maybe you should change your body? Why is that happening? Because that's brand new. And this comes back to the critique of culture that we have. What we have in our current culture moment is a God, a theology that said God is far off uninvolved. And if he is involved, he just wants you to do whatever you want. That's what I call bad theology. Second level image of God. This idea of what it means to be human, that God creates humans with bodies and their bodies tell them the truth about who they are, that you are your body, your body is you. 
we have in the current culture moment what I call a psychologized self, this belief that I'm going to look deep into the mirror of my mind and find myself deep down, and that's the real me. I need to act kind on of regardless that. of my body. Regardless of my body. So it's a disembodied, psychologized self. So the irony in now culture moment is that people on the left are preaching with great hostility. Bodies don't matter. Only psychologies matter. Hmm. Whereas I think what Moses is saying is male and female bodies matter. That if a male body is attracted to a male body, you are out of sync with Genesis 1. And that there's this call or a requirement even to try to bring your psychologies into line with creational norms in Genesis 1. And so this, this, this would be a theology of disordered desire, that we all have ordered and disordered desires, and the way that you judge that is not by running your desires through the filter of our cultural moment, but by running our desires through Scripture. Yeah, I remember um, <clears throat> just while we're talking about it, I, I remember Tim Keller using an example of imagine imagine that you have somebody who is a soldier and they have two really, really strong desires. This is a, a young man who's a, he's a soldier. He has two really strong desires. One is to be violent, uh, to inflict as much physical harm on people as yeah. possible. Seek, kill, destroy. Yeah. The second is to sleep with other men. Now, you put that that person in uh, kind of 1400s Anglo-Saxony Europe, and you go, what is that guy going to do? <laughs> well, he's going to find one of those desires that he has to be totally okay. Like, hey, man, be violent. Beat people up, destroy your enemies, no it's, problem. They're gonna, they will tell him it is natural, it is normal, it is healthy to sharpen a sword, join the army, and try and kill as many people as possible. But with his desire to have sex with other men, they will say, Something's wrong with you. Repress that desire. That is not a good thing. That yeah. is not right. Right? You put that same person today. So time travel him. Time travel him, and now he's in the Marine Corps. And... Uh, and you're going to have people say what? As it comes to your desire for, you know, violence, eh, yeah, I mean, if you're in the Marine Corps, I guess you got to do it. But outside the Marine Corps, you know, make sure you don't. Or even if you maybe transfer him, because the Marine Corps has a culture. That's true. But let's transfer him to. Uh, he's, in, he's in a high school. Yeah, he's a high school in Gilbert, Arizona. Yeah. And he has a real strong desire to be violent and a real strong desire to have sex with other guys. Which one of those gets called normal, natural, healthy? Act on it. The desire for other guys. Yeah. And but yeah. you'd go, you can't be violent. You need to be nice. You need to be kind. You need to be sweet. You need to be all those things. And anyway, the point of that is just to say, in any culture, there are some things that get cheerleaded, and there are other things that get, hey, hey, you better stop that. That's not good. And so um, the, what you're saying is these desires aren't always new. They're not new at all, actually. But what's new is that now they, they, these desires meet a culture that is championing these things on the basis of a of a you know of a poorly formed theology of God and a poorly formed anthropology and theology of of sex and the body. Yeah, and I think the great challenge for Christians kind of like we we're getting at I think is to recognize that our culture tells us which desires to, desires to repress and which desires to express. And we want to 
recognize that, all of us Christians, and say, I want to as much as possible acknowledge the desires my culture is telling me to repress and the desires my culture is telling me to express. And instead of submitting to the cultural values, try and submit to scripture. And I think that's what Moses gives an example of here. Yeah. That's great. So um, when you think about Moses critiquing the hell out of culture, is there anything else that that comes to mind that you want to push into? Yeah, actually, you preached a message on this in Exodus. We went through Exodus a couple years ago. We talked Mm -hmm. about the plagues. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love that one. I think it was... That was actually one of my favorite sermons. I think it was maybe the best sermon you've given that I've sat under. Really? No offense to all the other ones. Wow. But it was... Cool. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, it was a fun one. Yeah, it was a good one. Uh, But you, you I remember you talking about how even the plagues that God chose, which Moses recorded, again... Moses is writing Genesis and Exodus right after these people were fl- freed from slavery. They're now in the desert. Moses is writing down what God's son right down through his personality, through his cultural moment. But those plagues seem to be pretty, like Moses is critiquing the hell out of Egyptian culture, right? I mean, so yeah. so do you remember any of the insights that you could draw from that that apply to this conversation? Yeah, there's a few I remember. Um, one that I remember is, um, is you know, the, the Egyptians obviously had a great deal of worship related to the Nile. Um, you know, the Nile was seen as this source of life and this source of flourishing and all that sort of stuff. So when the, when the Nile turns to blood, it's God saying, Hey, this thing that you worship that you think is the source of life, I actually have the power to change it completely. I'm supreme over the Nile. So I remember that being one. Another example would be frogs. Um, there's that (laughs) crazy plague of the frogs where all these frogs just are everywhere. They're in the beds and they're in the laundry room and they're in everywhere. And, um, the Egyptians worshiped frogs. Uh, that was one of the gods they worshipped. And so, the, you know, or one of their gods, I should say, was depicted in the image of a frog. And so, again, it's God saying, hey, I'm supreme over that. Another one I remember that was less of like a God thing, but more of just a, a really sweet kind of ironic justice, poetic justice, if you will, was there's the plague where of the boils, where the dust blows over the land and they get these boils. Um, and it, it was basically... The dust was the dust from the kiln, and the kiln was where the it, the Israelite slaves had had fired the bricks. So it was God's way of saying, "Hey, you remember how you made my people fire those bricks? Well, I'm going to use the dust from that oven mm-hmm. to put boils all over your body and get justice because I'm God over you. No matter how powerful you think you are in oppressing my people. So, uh, yeah, there's there's just a bunch of that stuff and makes me want to go back and and look at that again. It was really fun. Yeah. So as you think about those plagues and you think about the implications for how we think about cultures, what comes to mind on that? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think in every, I think in every culture, there's this kind of desire to elevate things that aren't God into the place of God. Mm. And God is always, wanting his people to see I'm God and there is no other I'm God and there's none like me. Um, I am the Lord of heavens of the heavens and the earth. Um, I am God. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think it's interesting that there are things that we can kind of begin to conceive of as just normal or the way it is that kind of getting back to what we talked about last time that really are kind of, if you actually break it down, connected to religious claims about what's true and best and important. And I think God is always wanting us to go, no, 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 no. It's me. Look to me. Mm. Yeah. 
What about for you? Any thoughts you have there? Well, it's just helpful for me, especially in reading the Bible, to remind ourselves that there was an entire set of cultural practices and values and beliefs about what it means to be human, about what God is, about what we're meant to be doing with our bodies, that is explicitly being confronted in Genesis and Exodus. Yeah, It's not just written into a vacuum. And so if we think that dignity of humanity, sexuality, beliefs about God are like new problems, like that's that's one of the problems I have with some of like our, the culture's in decline narrative is it's like, that may be true like on a short timeline of history, but on a global history, like ever since Genesis three, the cultures have been <laughs> right. not Undecline. great. Yeah. 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 But Genesis it, four, you have murder. That's a pretty yeah, steep drop. It goes drop. pretty quick. It goes yeah. pretty quick. And I think it's, what I want us to recognize is this, like even as it relates to sexuality, this belief that I am my desire and you either approve of me acting my desire or you hate me mm. is absolutely rooted in an anthropology that is psychologized. I am the deep, dark depths of my heart, mind, and heart and mind. Yeah. And that is new in world history. And if anything, the Bible unapologetically connects identity to the body, that XX and XY are separate. And so even like you might say, okay, well, this is one of the arguments. There's only six or seven verses that explicitly critique homosexual practice. It's like, okay, well, even if you took out those six or seven verses from the whole Bible, you still have a normative creational vision that male and female are the corresponding other that are meant to go together. And at best, if you take out, you, you still have an argument from silence, which is called a non-argument. <laughs> right. And so the vision, the creational fabric, see, we a lot of times talk about our doctrine of creation. We argue about literal six days, non-literal six days. And I go, my doctrine of creation has way more to do with what I think my body is made of and where it came from. Like right now, my doctrine of creation is expressed in what do I think about my body, your body, our bodies, this world? Like the, it's the very fabric of everything that exists. That is creation. And it's here and it's now and it's among us. And so uh, Moses. Yeah, so if I have a literal six day view and everyone goes, man, you got a really strong view of creation, but I've actually adopted the culture's psychologized view that in order to find my true self, I just need to look within. Yeah. What you're saying is you I've actually missed I've actually missed the point of the doctrine of creation. You've missed the entire thrust of it. Yeah. That there's God's fingerprints everywhere. We don't look within to find our identity. We look without to God explicitly in his word to find our identity. And so one of the things I think I even want to come back to in this is in our current culture moment, it is not offensive to believe in God. Right. Not offensive at all. How many. Until you get specific. Until you get specific. Likewise, Moses could have gone to Pharaoh and be like, hey, Pharaoh. You believe in God? And Pharaoh's like, yep. <laughs> okay, cool. We're on the same team. No, that's not what happens. Right. God, through Moses, devastatingly critiques all the false gods of Egypt yep. in the creation story and in the plagues. In the creation story, he talks about the lesser light, the greater light. Moses doesn't even call them by their names. He's kind of, refer and those are like the main gods yeah. in Egypt. The sun and the moon, sure. The sun and the moon. Well, yeah, that was another part of the, the plagues is yeah. he turned the sun off and it got dark over the land. And, yeah. yeah. And so one of the things that's going on in Genesis one is Moses saying, Egypt, your gods suck. <laughs> right. They're created. You're worshiping created things. You're crazy. Stop it. There is one God, the creator of all things, maker of heaven and earth. And so at the level of, so similarly in our current cultural moment, I believe in God. I believe in God. Oh, that's cool. You believe in God. I believe in God, but it has to land 
and God revealing himself in the person of Jesus, his virgin birth, his sinless life, his death, and his resurrection. And all of that happened in a body. In his body. He did not come as an idea. He didn't come as a thought. He didn't come as a concept. He came as a person, like you, born of a virgin in a body. Yeah. So going back to, if we want to critique culture, like Moses critiques the Hellenic culture, one is theology. If it doesn't land in the triune God, the person of Jesus, who broke into history in a body, murdered in that body, risen in that body, that's the place that all culture critique begins. Because mm. if you don't have a God who, who presides over creation and is connected to creation, you don't have a Christian view of God. Mm. And that has implications everywhere. Yeah. If God's just somewhere else way far off, then he doesn't care what we do. And if God is located within creation, like in a pantheism, then there's no authority. There's just emanation and just God's a higher version of us or something like that. Second thing is anthropology. Is is there a high view of every human? Yes or no? Is there a caste system? Are there degrees of value and voice? And if so, you have an unbiblical culture. Yeah. So so let me just ask on that, and I know you're kind of recapping here and probably about to land, but... As it relates to that, I do feel like our culture largely gets that one, like we would score higher on that. Yeah. Like there is a sense, and I think this comes out of Christianity and out of the Christian influence in the West. I think a lot of secular people don't appreciate that the reason they believe in universal human rights is actually because of Christianity. Um, but there is a sense today of going, yeah, everybody everybody counts. Everybody's voice matters. Everybody should be seen as equal and and have dignity. Yeah. Yeah. On that note, here's this, there's this historian who wrote the book, Passion of the Western Mind, a guy named Richard Tarnas. Right. The dude is not a Christian. Yes. And here's what he says about what Christianity did to the culture when it came on the scene. He says, Christianity gave to its members a pervasive sense of God's personal direct interest in human affairs and vital concern for every human soul. In contrast to the Greek focus on its great heroes and its rare philosophers, the ultimate wisdom and heroism of Christ made redemption possible for all, not just the elite. Christ is the sun who shone on all mankind. Christianity brought to the pagan world a new sense of the sanctity of all human life. Yeah. And so any view that all humans are good and have dignity and value was literally impregnated into our culture by Christianity. Yeah. And now we're trying to remove the Christianity from our culture. And the question is, how long will the sanctity of human life last? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not super hopeful if you go, okay, theology, oof, that's that's crumbled. Anthropology, eh, it's a little higher on the score, but you see the, the foundation shaking. And then you look at the sexuality part and you go, it won't be long now. Yeah, yeah. And so I just want us as Redemption Gateway to recognize that critiquing the hell of culture begins with theology, anthropology, sexuality, and you get all of that straight in Genesis 1. We haven't gotten to Genesis 2 yet. We haven't gotten to Genesis 3 yet. Uh, and that's a fair place to begin and a fair place to say, do we have a view that God put us here and he put us here to do certain things and to not do certain things? Yeah. And that's part of the deal. Now, I want to conclude maybe with a little bit of a, of a pastoral application here. Yeah. Um, because anytime we're critiquing the hell out of culture, we are also critiquing the hell out of ourselves. Yes. Because we're part of the culture and we're shaped by the culture and we're culture makers. 
So it would be, I think, irresponsible to close a podcast like this without saying, uh, you and I, Seth, you and I, and everyone listening, this is a good time to look in the mirror of God's word and go, how's my theology? Am I living as though God really is supreme? Or am I bowing the knee to other gods um, or even putting myself on the throne as God? I think it would be another time to go, am I living as though every person I interact with has dignity and worth and that they're image bearers? Or am I easily kind of casting aside in my mind and heart the people who I just don't like or they're not like me or they are different in whatever way? And then I think there's a question on the sexuality. We can critique the hell out of the culture. and Man, they're all screwed up, and yet uh, pornography use is pretty high in the church. There's a lot of husbands and wives that don't honor each other as a complimentary other who use their power to hurt or to break down that relationship. And so this really is a chance to not just look at the culture, but to actually look at ourselves and say, God, help us. Help us to live with you on the throne. Help us to live with the dignity of all people and help us to live male and female the way you created us to live. Anything you'd add there? Yeah, I think if we don't feel implicated in this and have a sense of, yeah, because the reality is that we, like, so I'll just kind of speak personally here. Theology. How often do I treat my public versus private sins differently? Mm. If I believe in the God of the Bible, there is no such thing as private sins. How often would you say, like, like if you, either in your head or in your heart or somewhere else, like there's a sin going on, and if someone else found out, you'd be devastated. But God already knows, and you're like, meh. Mm. Secondly, on, on like anthropology, like how quickly I am to, someone if someone like really disagrees with me on something that I think is important, how quickly I am to jump to dehumanize them in my mind. Well, forget them. Well, they're less than anyway. And I immediately start to justify my repulsion by just heaping it on, right? Because if they disagree with me, then I don't have to take it seriously if they're just a huge idiot and subhuman, right? Or, or even thoroughly in sexuality, right? Talking about the explicit act of like homosexual practice, but Christ refuses to let us off the hook. He says, if anyone commits lust in their heart. And so there's no room for high ground. Yeah. And so it's one thing to speak definitively as we critique culture. It's another thing to avoid implication of that critique, like you said. And so I'm super grateful you took us there. And that's probably why uh, I like you so much. <laughs> but because I, I wasn't thinking we'd go there. I'm just kind of in critique mode. And I'm grateful you took me out of critique mode and put me into... You know, yeah, it's, it, we talk it's, about it's, it's one Matthew thing. It's, seven. One, it's one thing to look in the mirror. It's another thing to look out the window. Yeah. And if this web, if this uh, podcast is a bunch of looking out the window and not a lot of looking in the mirror, yeah, uh, we're in trouble. Yeah, I was going to say it's Matthew seven where Jesus says you, you take the speck out of your brother's eye, but you don't look at the log in your own. He doesn't say don't take the speck out of your brother's eye because you have a log in your own. He says no, take the log out of yours first, and then take the speck out of your brother's. And so I, I think that that's probably runs through all these conversations is there should be moments where we're going, okay, 
there's a log in our own eye. Let's take that out. Let's address that. Let's deal with it. And then let's, with conviction and clarity, let's stand uh, for the truth of God yeah. in, a, in a culture that's dishonoring well, him. And I've talked to a lot of folks who maybe don't buy into the psychologized view of self as it relates to sexuality, but they do as it relates to buying cars. Well, I want it. I think God wants me to have it. I'm going for it or something like that. Yeah. Right. Like that, I want it, therefore God wants me to have it. Or I want it, it's me. Sure. You know, and not that all those are necessarily sinful, but this kind of view that, well, God wants me to be happy. So, yeah. And so we buy into it in a variety of different ways that psychology itself. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to stop. Uh, we'll pick up next time and have another conversation as part of this mini series on evaluating culture. And just to whet everyone's appetites, we are talking about the mark of the beast. Ooh, the mark our, of the beast. Next as time. our concluding part of evaluating cultures and worldviews. The mark of the beast. Well, do not YouTube it. You will lose <laughs> your mind. Yeah, well, stay tuned. And uh, yeah, well, thanks again for joining us. It's uh, awesome to have you listening. And uh, bye now. Later. Later.